Hey, uh, welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and with me today, as always, is our deputy editor, the fabulous Evan Lorenz. Phil Grant, who edits Must Be Read, uh, Almost Daily Grants, which comes out on an almost daily basis. And of course, Eric Whitehead at the controls. Now, gentlemen, today we have some business. We're going to talk at length to uh, Victor Shi, who is a, a professor who professes, among other things, that China is a big, fat, ugly Ponzi scheme. I'm paraphrasing our president during the campaign. Before that, before we get down to China, Ponziism and the like. I have something to say about Steinhoff. Steinhoff, uh, as you all know by now, is a South Africa-based household products company that has got itself in a pickle. Its CEO has just quit uh, their financial irregularities, supposedly. It's being investigated, is Steinhoff, by the investigatory body of the South African government, as well, apparently, as by European authorities. The thing is about Steinhoff is that it's got an issue of bonds outstanding, and a part of that issue is in the possession of none other than Mario Draghi himself. Now, he might, I think he's doing business with the European Central Bank, but it's Mario Draghi who has instituted this bond program. It's, it's uh, Shakespeare say, is gross as a mountain, open, palpable. He was talking about lies, Shakespeare, but I'm, I'm saying this with respect to this bond buying program. Gross as a mountain. Evan, how much corporate debt has the European Central Bank bought? 129 billion euros. I, I think that's right. Yeah, right. I asked the question, I answered the question. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait for it because I'm so mad about this. All right, so um, the ECB uh, owning a bit of this security, and these are the, uh, for keeping a score at home, these are the Steinhoff, one and seven eighths of January 24th, 2025. Now, Evan, what rate, what yield would you guess this issue came to market? Uh, for a clue, it's rated BAA3, which is kind of one foot in junk land, one foot in investment grade vill, and it came uh, at a price to deliver as, uh, what do you... Well, well, the U.S. Treasury borrowers at two and change, so I figure some spread above that, maybe four or five percent. Uh, Phil, will you care to hazard a... Well, it is a bull market, so uh, well, let's, you know, shave off a few basis points off of that, and we'll call it three and a half. Uh-huh. Eric? Eric is shaking He's his... He's not sure. Uh, no. Yeah, no, Eric is going to... Yes. Well, you should be, because the Steinhoff 1 and 7 eighths of January 24th, uh, 2025, came to market at 99.444, a price to deliver a yield, I guess, what, 2% thereabouts. Now, this bond, this Steinhoff 1 and 7 eighths of January 24th, 2025, was doing business in the marketplace at, what, a price of 90 or so? Just about a week or two ago, yeah. Yeah, and um, and lo and behold, there are the aforementioned investigations into the uh, this and that alleged irregularity. The CEO who resigned is apparently long a boat full of common shares, heavily margined, and there's some question about a downgrade. Naturally, there would be. So this bond goes from 90-something to 60-60-something, just like that. It reminds me a little bit of Toys R Us. Right, the uh, the security that uh, languidly traded in the summer at about uh, 93 or 94, and uh, there were rumors of uh, so-called restructuring. <laughs> It would not Toys R Us. And uh, you woke up one morning and it wasn't a 90 number, it was a 20 number, right? I think the bonds went from 90 something to 20 something, which are signs of a not well-tempered capital market, gentlemen, when this can happen to a perfectly, apparently, sound investment-grade security. Somebody's not watching the shop. And to top it all off, the biggest stockholder in this thing is none other than the, the government employees pension scheme in South Africa. Great, right? So the, the working stiffs of South Africa own this 
security. And the, the pensioners, uh, and this is, a, this is a bit of a stretch, I mean, make this comparison, although the, uh, uh, the South Africans are truly on the hook because this, the Public Investment Corporation owns uh, a 9.7% stake of Steinhoff. So they're really in the soup. And in Europe, they own a, a fraction of a piece of a fraction of this thing, the bond that is, and uh, it won't even show up on the audit of um, the ECB if there ever were such, a, I don't know, the audit ECB? Um, I, I, Who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think I finished my sermon, but I'm still mad. Yeah. Well, actually, in a way, the commercial banks in Europe will bear the loss. So the, the ECB is going to pay off the loss to the, you know, the, the banks that make up the, the ECB, the national central bank. So like the Bank of Finland, the Bank of France, but they charge a negative deposit rate on the banks for excess deposits. So the banks are getting charged a fee that's probably more than enough to actually cover the loss in the security. Yeah. Well, the Bundesbank, of course, holds the biggest portion of the ECB's capital. So it will bear the principal loss, such losses there might be. Again, the loss is going to be microscopic in the scheme of things. Uh, Mr. Draghi has bought so many securities, this is not going to even show up um, without uh, a microscope or something, but it is at least illustrative of what can happen when public policy meets credit risk. This reminds me also, it's kind of a, an echo of something that happened in this country around 1989, 1990. There's a company called Ohio Mattress. I guess it was Sealy, then Ohio Mattress. It was an LBO project of the of the first Boston Corporation and woke up one morning and, and Ohio Mattress was not shipping to uh, Robert Campos, uh, was the owner of or the principal, uh, the CEO certainly of a, of a leveraged retail organization. So one arm of the first Boston Corporation's leveraged business model was not shipping to another because of credit risk on both on one side and certainly there was credit risk on the other. Well, anyway, that will complete this somewhat meandering but still impassioned editorial commentary on the state of the world with a polluted, yes, Mr. Draghi, a polluted capital market. And thanks for that. All right. We have today a, a special guest in Victor Xi, who is a, uh, an academic who is of this world. He is uh, an associate professor of uh, uh, political economy at UC San Diego, but not that that is not in and of itself the proper and great credential, but he's also a student of uh, markets and observer of finance, and he's applied these studies and observations to China. So we're going to talk about China with Professor Xi. Uh, Victor, may I affect a friendship and intimacy I only aspire to by addressing you as Victor? Come on. Good. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, get that though I am only a professor. No, See, around here we have a kind of a thing about uh, the PhD standards, we call it, because the Federal Reserve System is overpopulated with uh, aspiring NASA physicists who had to get a degree in economics instead, and they apply their somewhat uh, witchcraft-like expertise. Um, anyway, enough of that. That's a rabbit hole we have gone down <laughs> too often. I'm going to ask Evan Lorenz, who is the uh, staff sinologist. Evan also specializes in the Caribbean and South America. And uh, Europe and uh, the Antarctic regions, but he is also also our sinologist. So Evan, please uh, address your first question to Victor. So. Victor, um, in your most recent paper, you wrote that China's annual debt servicing expense has exceeded incremental nominal GDP every year since 2012. And you write that China as a whole is a Ponzi unit. Is China set up for near-term financial calamity? So, you know, this is a very tricky question and one that people have asked me for a very long time. I think domestically, they have very few constraints uh, just because the Chinese government controls all the banks, nearly all the banks in China, and they basically order the banks to roll over the debt of distressed borrowers on a very large scale. So as long as the central bank continues to print money and give it to the banks, uh, the banks can continue to roll over the debt of distressed borrowers. So there's no 
near term, at least trigger for a crisis from a domestic perspective. But I think if you look at a larger picture and uh, consider, I would say, you know, even at $3 trillion, China's foreign exchange reserve actually is small. And I can get into why I think that, as well as the rapidly growing external debt of China. I think that's where you find the constraints. I wouldn't say it's a near term, but, you know, definitely risk will get much larger on a two, three year horizon. This episode of the Grants Podcast is brought to you by Morty, M-O-R-T-Y, the newest and smartest way to get a home mortgage. So if you ever bought a home, you know full well how onerous and annoying the mortgage process can be. Painful, time-consuming, phone call intensive, lawyer intensive, not to be experienced. You don't have to. You don't have to. Morty can make it fast and easy. Not only simplifies the process, but they help you find the smartest mortgage that's right for you. Just input your information into Morty's secure website, and less time than it takes to hear this ad, you can shop qualified rates from different lenders. So you can get uh, real loan options in minutes without ever being called or sold by a mortgage broker. You can shop for loans from different lenders, automatically generate a pre-approval letter online for you in minutes, help you speed up the home buying process and talk confidently to realtors and sellers. So Morty wants to save you money. No commission salespeople, so their experts exist solely to give you the best deal possible. They've got a, a good customer service team too to answer your questions. So whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to refinance or buying an investment property, head on over to trymorty.com slash grant to get started today. That's trymorty, T-R-Y-M-O-R-T-Y, trymorty.com slash grant. So Morty Inc. is a licensed mortgage broker, equal housing lender, license number 1429243. Uh, Victor, could you elaborate a little bit on this citing uh, about uh, debt service in excess of available cash flow and the Ponzi-like nature of that uh, going back now at five years? Uh, you begin to wonder how long the long term is. But before we get into the when question, please describe for us the how question. How is it that they do this? So by my calculation, that non-financial debt that is debt that has been borrowed by non-financial institutions is now well over 300% of China's GDP. So at a time when uh, rates are rising, and by the way, the PBOC has increased interest rate recently because they are so afraid of capital flight, mainly because they're so afraid of capital flight, but also because they want to sort of give the shadow banking industry a hard time to some extent, then the interest servicing costs of the debtors also has increased quite dramatically. So, you know, you just take a easy round number and, and I do it obviously in the paper in a much more cheerful way, but you know, let's say if interest rate were 6% today, roughly where it is, at 300% of GDP, that when you have debt that's 300% of GDP, just servicing the interest is 18% of nominal GDP. And this is, of course, happening at a time when nominal GDP is growing at best at 10%. You know, real GDP is growing at like 6%, uh, 6, 6, six and a half, but China has inflation, obviously. In reality, actually, the interest rates, the average weighted interest rates of all non-financial debt in China... I forgot what it is in the paper, but it's higher, probably close to the 7%. So then you have, you know, nominal interest servicing that is over 20% of nominal GDP and growth of 10%. So by definition, you know, new credit would have to finance this. Well, new credit or as someone pointed out, some other sources, you know, savings or something like that would have to go toward finance, just the interest payment. And to me, that makes the entire Chinese banking system sort of a Ponzi scheme. 
because it is not able to generate new income in the economy to even serve as an interest payment, just sort of the classic definition. Uh, Victor, you know, for uh, Mr. Truism, of course, in bookkeeping, that for every liability, there's an asset, and uh, these debts are someone's liability, but also someone's assets. Who is receiving these interest payments, and what percentage of those recipients are domestic and indigenous, and what percentage external. So the interest payments are received by mainly the Chinese bank directly or indirectly. And then of course ultimately so the banks take some of it as just net profit. So do other financial institutions like trust companies and also brokers, increasingly very important players in shadow banking. Uh, but of course, you know, since because of 30 years of reform, there there is now a very wealthy class of investors uh, in China. And the way that savings are distributed in China is very uneven. You know, like much of the rest of the world, you have 5 to 10% of population that basically has 40 to 60% of all saving China. And they're investing very aggressively, not just in real estate, which is the one that people talk about, but also in a lot of domestic financial products. So in a sense, you know, the higher rate, and someone was telling me this in China, the higher rates in China is really aimed, and also capital control, obviously, are really aimed at being the money of this wealthy class of investors uh, whose net worth is, you know, in the tens of trillions of dollars to keep their money in China to prevent them from moving the money overseas, because obviously if they were to move their money overseas, I think China would be in big trouble. So I think households, obviously, and also to some extent, cash-rich corporations, like some of these uh, IT companies that have raised a lot of money from investors, they are the recipients of, of this. Well, Victor, uh, wouldn't payment. the Chinese say, if they were here to say it, that we owe it to ourselves? That is true in some sense. Well, how, how much the, how much of the uh, debt is owed externally? Wealthy. You have that figure, Victor? Yeah, so it's around $2 trillion. So it, as a share of total debt in China, which is some large amount, tens of trillions of dollars, it's not big. And people point that out to me a lot, but as a share of all EM emerging market debt, it's very big. So the amount that China owes to the rest of the world is larger than the combination of Brazil, Russian, Indian external debt, right? So, so China is a major and massive borrower from the rest of the world. So that that is, a, I would say, that's a big weakness. I mean, the other big weakness is that, uh, as you know, you know, you guys know more than anyone probably, you know, currency is a liability to the central bank. And China has been increasing its money supply very, very aggressively the past 30 years, really, partly to help growth, but then partly to create a lot of assets, uh, inflate a lot of asset prices to entice this emerging class of wealthy investors to keep the money in China. The moment, but if you keep on inflating assets, A, naturally, this wealthy class of investors will naturally want to diversify some of their money out of China. And increasingly, this natural diversification in itself will cause a lot of capital flight. And then uh, ultimately, if they were to lose confidence in asset prices in China, they're going to want to massively move the money out of China. And I think that that is, a you know, because currency is a liability, that liability is owed to domestic people in China, mainly, 
But um, it doesn't mean that they don't have an uh, option Victor, moving their money out of China. So do you see the exchange rate as the biggest risk to China right now? And again, because you pointed out China's... I, I do, yeah. <laughs> I uh, Well, not it's capital flight, right? So it's not... The exchange rate is this weird thing where China is trying to do everything at once. Because, I mean, obviously, China can slow down capital flight if it were to devalue its currency. But it doesn't want to do that because, well, well, uh, A, they're afraid that if they were to devalue the currency, it's going to trigger even more capital flights. And then the other thing is that they don't want their nominal GDP in dollar terms to collapse because the leadership wants the Chinese economy to be worth more than the U.S. economy in the near future in nominal terms for this kind of national glory reason. So, so I think capital flight and exchange rate are indeed are big risk in China. What, what could precipitate capital flight? And just to go over it, China really has cracked down on uh, capital controls in the last year and a half. So what what could actually be the trigger for money to flee China? And like, could the party actually control it? Because they really have clamped down on a lot of the ways that money has left the country in the last two years. They have, you know, especially the upper middle class now has a very hard time money overseas. But again, I think the weakness is that wealth is very, very concentrated in China. So even if the upper middle class is having a hard time to move money overseas, I think the, the super wealthy people who are sitting on trillions of dollars of assets can move money out of China if they wanted to. But recently, because the weak dollar and, you know, higher rate within China, at least according to, I mean, I don't know that many billionaires in China, but I do know a couple who are related to billionaires in China. And they've told me that actually the weak dollar and also increasing yields uh, of financial products in China have been the main reasons why they have kept the money in China. But if they were to lose faith in that return, then, or, you know, of course, if returns were to get very attractive outside of China, which is a potential. I mean, we can talk about the Fed and, and the potential for multiple rate hikes uh, next year, then that could trigger another round of capital flights. And before people say that, well, you know, this happened to China already. They lost a trillion dollars. They didn't even blink an eye. I would argue that losing a trillion dollar was a very big deal for China because in reality, the foreign exchange reserve is not $3 trillion. It's a lot lower than that. So they're truly liquid. So if they were to lose another even half a trillion, then I think they would have some very difficult choices. Uh, uh, Victor, it seems like to us that China was slowing down in kind of late 15 and early 16, and that the party knew that there was going to be the 19th National Congress this year. And we saw kind of lending pick up in um, 16 and into 17. We saw house prices appreciate. We saw activity accelerate. And a lot of people think that Xi Jinping uh, engineered an economic rebound to put his best foot forward in front of the Congress. Was he able to actually do that? And if so, what does that actually mean for... Um, 2018 and 2019 if he's pulled forward demand from those years? Uh, he indeed was able to do that and his technocrats deliberately engineered uh, an economic rebound. How did they do that? Uh, well, you know, I don't think it was that difficult. I mean, they, they did a couple things simultaneously. One is they did begin to crack down on shadow banking and also on the rapidly rising property prices. Well, so, so they initiated economic growth or accelerated economic growth by relaxing housing policy policies first in 2015 and increasing the pace of infrastructure investment, both of which, by the way, are financed by debt. So property sales, they relaxed the policies, but then uh, one of the things that they relaxed was mortgages. They lowered down payments in some cases in late 2014, early 2015. So that got things going. But then housing prices were rising so fast. 
fast by the late 2015. So in 2016, they began to crack down on that by, you know, increasing down payment requirements and having like buying restrictions in certain cities and also some measures to crack down on uh, shadow banking, which was growing very, very fast. So they wanted to engineer. So my friends who was planning this for Xi Jinping actually <clears throat> in China, they wanted a perfect balance of growth of the so-called real economy, which in China means debt finance investment, but then not so rapid growth of financial asset price, stock market, like rapid growth in shadow banking, outstanding shadow bank debt. So they engineered that. Uh, this episode of uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air is sponsored by eFinancial Careers, the world's leading financial services career website. So discover career-changing opportunities across the industry from leading brands to niche firms. So why not take the hard work out of job hunting? Just register today and let the recruiters find you. So, you know, create your own profile, create alerts, upload your resume and cover letter to apply for jobs as they are presented uh, on the web. And uh, so check out the site at uh, eFinancialCareers.com. That's eFinancialCareers.com. Careers.com. Victor, one, one last thing, if we may. I think that uh, the fundamental insight you have had with respect to the nature of the Chinese enterprise, you call it a Ponzi scheme, because, as you point out, that cost of debt finance is rising at a faster rate than is nominal the nominal GDP with which to service that debt. It's been going on for five years, we read in your work, since 2012. This must be, <clears throat> this must be among the longest-running Ponzi schemes ever. When... Uh, so I really think, as I alluded to at the beginning, the big vulnerability is the increase in money supply in China relative to its foreign exchange reserve. So already, the foreign exchange reserve is only 10% of money supply in China. Right. And with every year, that ratio is going to shrink uh, because certainly the foreign exchange reserve, even if it grows by a couple billion dollars, as it has done in the past couple of months, it is nothing compared to the trillions of dollars in increasing money supply every year. And to give you a sense, you know, I think this year Chinese money supply will grow by two and a half trillion US dollars in a single year, right? So it's massive. I mean, because the financial system is so massive, because they've tried for so many years to roll over so much debt, the money supply is just massively increasing. And it ends up in the hands of people, right? These very wealthy oligarchs, and they're not stupid, and also they're not powerless. So they're going to want to move their money overseas. They constantly want to do that. So the pressure of capital outflow is really not going to stop. And if you have even relatively minor shocks in real terms, you us in China, or some, even if it's temporary episode of political panic about what's happening in China, you could see this pretty big wave of outflows, and then China may be forced into a situation of uh, contemplating valuation currency, which then could trigger even more outflows, and ultimately, you know, what people have been anticipating for many years, which is a massive asset price depreciation, which of course will have massive implications for the financial system, because the underlying collateral for much of the credit in the system are land and property. So if land prices and property prices were to collapse, you know, not a true collapse, but even if it were to go down by 30%, it would uh, render a lot of credit in the financial system. Okay, so Victor, we have, I have one only one request. This has been been great, and I thank you for it. I want one request, and that is we just want two weeks' notice before it happens. Two weeks. Two weeks' notice. Okay. Right. You know our number. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Victor Xi. It's been fabulous. Thanks for being on the Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Mm -hmm.